Well, good morning, Northwood. It is good to be here. Um, as Mitch shared, we got to know the Cruets um, from Creekside Community Church, and uh, it's been a joy to, to get to know he and Rebecca, and uh, it's a joy to be here with you um, today. Um, Mitch, among all of his responsibilities, had a rotation that he would preach, and uh, I always loved what he preached. He's very careful, as you know. He's very thoughtful, and he was always really good to tie it in application to really what was going on, and so I've always uh, appreciated about him, and I, I trust you all do as well. You all do know as well that Mitch also has sort of a, a high administrative skill set, like he does a lot of planning. He doesn't just do anything, you know. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Thank you. Yeah. To give you an idea, I have known about this for nine months, okay? Um, and I almost texted Mitch this week and said, hey, brother, I'm sorry. I think I need 10. Um, uh, so I have, I've literally had nine months for this, so... Um, I don't do this often, but I do find it to be a daunting task, to be quite candid. Uh, to preach God's Word, it is a, uh, it's a heavy weight. It really is, and you all know that. Um, so uh, this morning, I've really got two objectives uh, just coming right out uh, with full disclosure. One, that God is exalted this morning um, and that His saints are encouraged, um, that, that Christ is exalted and that we're encouraged. If we do the one, and that'll take all of us focusing here uh, together, that we see Christ exalted, uh, and we will indeed be encouraged uh, if we do that. Uh, I was given two, two separate tracks. One was, based on your reading plan, was uh, Mark 2 through 6 or Job 15 through 19. So I, I kicked Mark around a little bit, but I, my mind immediately went to Job. I've read Job a few times probably several times, but I really don't, didn't understand much of Job. And uh, this was an opportunity for me uh, to really get my arms around it. And I feel like I understand it way better than I used to. So regardless of where this ends up, this may be a total disaster, but uh, thank you all for the privilege to, to really get to know Job for myself. It, uh, it's been a, it's been a, a, a pleasure, really. Uh, Job, to me, is a hero. Uh, and he wasn't before. Not that I it's just because I hadn't spent much time with Job, uh, but Job is a giant, really, in the faith. Uh, and the way he responds, and you saw sort of our core text, uh, the way he responds is remarkable each time. Um, and our hub text is that, that Job 19, 23 through 25, really. Uh, I would encourage you, some of you, you're, you're used to being able to really follow along. I, I am going to, if it's okay. This is going to be our hub text, and we're going to orbit this, and we're just going to walk through Job and, and let it kind of do the exposition, if you will. Uh, but our, our, our core text, and you heard it, uh, is Job 19, uh, 23 to 25. Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were written on a scroll with an iron chisel and with lead that they were engraved in a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he will stand upon the earth. A fantastic statement. And when we get to there, it's even more fantastic in, as to how he stands on that with confidence. And that's what we want, don't we? Uh, we know if we walk with the Lord for three days or more that there's, there's trouble here, right? Um, 
we're guaranteed trouble because of the fall. And, and so I think we can learn a lot and we can be encouraged by Job's response uh, as we work through this. So uh, we start in Job. Uh, we get an introduction to Job. And he is in a really good place in Job 1. He is uh, blessed in just about every way imaginable, as you remember. Uh, he's got 10 children, seven boys, and three girls. He's known even more important for who he is in his walk with God. Three times right out of the gate, he's said to be blameless and above reproach. He's, he's not sinless, but he's upright. It's very clear he's a man of God. Uh, there's characteristics of him that are pretty profound. It says he doesn't look with lust. We find out later, he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. He desired deeply to be pleasing to the Lord. It says he, he turned from evil. He was a friend to the widow. And it says, and you can sort of imagine, he had a region. Sojourners, when they came through, he said he was not without his hospitality. Uh, Job was very caring. Job was very loving. Um, Job was different. He was... Well, he was upright, um, not without sin, but upright. He was a wealthy man, right? He was said to have 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. I don't know why the male donkeys don't count, but uh, 500 female donkeys. Uh, I looked up what... Does the average sheep farmer, how many head of sheep do they have? And my Google took me to another question. It said, to be profitable as a sheep farmer, you have to have hundreds of sheep, 500 or more. Uh, Job had 7,000, and that was then. If it were a land of millionaires, it's safe to say Job was a billionaire. He was very well off. It was said to be the greatest among all the men of the East. So Job had God's blessing in every way imaginable. And then we're quickly brought into, in verse 6, a really interesting scenario, as you remember, where the sons of God present themselves before God, and Satan is there. Literally, the Satan is there. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, This fallen angel is also in the presence with the other angels when they present themselves. And God says to him, where have you come from? And he says, I have come from um, roving about on the earth, walking up and down on it. And God immediately says, knowing what that meant, or actually, we, we know what that means really from Peter, don't we? Because he says that you know, he, he admonishes us, be sober in spirit, for the devil, your adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So he says that, that I've been, I've been roving around, and God says to him, have you considered my servant Job? You've been prowling around, basically trying to wreak havoc, right? Trying to wreck the saints, that's what he does. 
And God says, have you considered my servant Job? For he's the greatest of all the men of the East. And then Satan says, of course he is. You've blessed him in every way imaginable. You've put a hedge of protection around him. Strike everything he has and he will curse you to your face. And God says, okay, you can strike him, but you can't touch him. And it seems as if it's the next day, and we know what happens. All hell is unleashed on Job, isn't it? And it's, uh, it's pretty serious. And, you know, I'm reminded in this book, I've been reminded really over the last uh, year or so, this reminder that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's really, really serious, isn't it? And this notion that the things that we see are temporal, but the things that we don't see are eternal. And so God is doing something here by glorifying himself, by saying, have you considered my servant Job? And we see he keeps him. He keeps him. But boy, does he go through a test at a trial, the likes of which I hope none of you have gone through. But no doubt, folks here in a group this size are experiencing serious pain. And we can be encouraged and we can glean a lot by Job and God's faithfulness to him. But Satan says, of course, you know, um, he's faithful. But let me have a crack at him. And God says, okay, but you can't touch him. There's a scenario right after that where Job's children are feasting at the eldest son's house. All the children are there. And a messenger comes to Job and says, Hey, the Sabaeans have just sacked us, and they took all your oxen and all your donkeys, and they put your servants to the sword. I'm the only one that survived. And it says, While he was still speaking, another messenger comes. And it says, A fire from heaven came down and killed all your sheep. And all your servants, I'm the only one that survived. And again, while he was still speaking, another messenger comes and says, the Chaldeans, they've come and they've taken all your camels. And if it couldn't get any worse, another messenger comes and says, while he was still speaking, the other messenger comes and says, a strong wind came from the desert and struck the four corners of the house that your children were feasting in. And you know what happens, right? It collapsed and killed all the children. That's a pretty bad day, isn't it? I mean, that is really, really serious. One day, he loses everything, right? He loses his wealth. He loses his children. Mrs. Job is still there, which later we find is actually pretty, that's pretty difficult too. Uh, Mrs. Job is still alive. But listen to what he says when that happens. He says in verse 21, Naked I came into the world of chapter 1, 
and naked I'll depart. It's interesting, he didn't say naked I came and naked I'll go back and kind of start over again. Job is almost saying, I'm ending this way. Naked I came, naked I'll depart. The Lord gave and the Lord will take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. Would that we'd have that kind of rock-solid confidence, right? And we can as we, as we learn from this, this, this book and as we see how God is compassionate towards Job, is loving towards Job, even though there is a real disaster of a scene that takes place. So Job has lost it all. And it says that even at the end of that, it says in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. So there's a gap. I don't know how long it is. It seems to be a little bit of time because it's almost as if the Satan has moved on from him. But there's another almost exact sort of scenario in which there's a time in which the angels of God present themselves before God and Satan's there again. And he asks him the same thing, where have you been? He says basically the same thing. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? It's almost like he's moved on from him. He wrecked him, and Job was faithful. It's almost like Satan has moved on. And God says, have you considered my servant Job, who has stayed in his integrity? He stayed confident in me, for there's none like him on the earth. And he says, the one in whom you incited me against him without cause, have you considered him? It's worth noting that God is setting those parameters. God almost provokes this, doesn't he? Have you considered my servant Job? And God is the one that tells him how far he can go and what he can do. He's got his hand on the button. God is sovereign over all of it. But Satan says, skin for skin, a man will do anything for his life. Let me have a crack at him like that, essentially, and he will curse you to your face. And you know what happens? God says, okay, but you can't kill him. And then we know what happens after that. It seems like right away, Job then is stricken with this terrible disease that says he's got sores on his feet to the crown of his head. And it's a disease really that seems to threaten his life. And we don't know how long it goes on, but there's some descriptive sort of descriptors if you will, of, of what this is like. It's, he is found by chapter 2, Job, sitting in a pile of ash with his teeth falling out. His breath is putrid, and he's got a broken piece of pottery, and he's scratching himself. That's pretty rough, isn't it? His wealth is gone, and his health is gone. And it's a really, really bad scene. Now we have the introduction of his three buddies, right? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These are folks that lived in the region. They obviously knew Job. 
they say, let's go see Job. And they say why they want to go. They want to console him and they want to sympathize with him. They get together. They come to see Job. The scriptures say when they get to where they could see him, but they're at a distance, they tear their clothes and they throw dust on their head and they weep loudly because they said Job was unrecognizable. By the way, another characteristic of how he's described is his skin is clinging to his bones. He's in a really, really bad way. The best thing that those guys do is they're silent for seven days and seven nights. You all remember, right? That is, had they left there, that would have been a win. Um, But they don't. And after those seven days, Job starts to talk. And they begin to, well, teach him, instruct him, tell him there's something wrong, right? And so Eliphaz addresses him first, um, probably because he's the eldest. And, you know, he's kind of, he's a little more softer on him than Bildad and Zophar. He kind of says, hey, you know, there's a chance maybe you've got some, perhaps some, there's sin you don't know about, you know. Um, there's something there, Job. Of course, he's, uh, you know, there's not, you know. Job's pretty, pretty firm, you know. Uh, Bildad, more aggressive. Zophar, more aggressive. And that cycles through basically three different scenarios, and Job responding, the majority of the book, right, is around those types of dialogues that happen. And what's really interesting is when you look at what they say, it's, it's orthodox in a lot of ways about God, right? I mean, when you're reading it, you're, these are kinds of things that we think and say. Um, and, and, and I think we can learn a lot from here to develop you know, a theology of suffering, right? That it's, it's very clear Job is not reaping this kind of whirlwind, if you will, because of his sin. The scriptures are making that really, really clear. It's for God's glory. But they say, nope, you've got some sin in your life. Um, and it's, uh, it's just really interesting. And you kind of see it in John 9, too, when the disciples say to Jesus, you remember when, he, when, they, when they walk up on the blind man and they say, who sinned, him or his parents? And God says, Neither but that the glory of God might be manifest. So this type, of the, this type of thinking is not far. The problem I think we have and I have is, you know, this, the, the, the big question of why do bad things happen to good people, right? That's a, that's a pretty big question. And for, for us, we've got a robust view of the depravity of man, so we can easily just kind of sweep that aside. Well, there's no such thing as a good person, you know? That's easy, Right? We're just, it's a gift. We get a breath of air, right? God doesn't owe us uh, anything. Um, in fact, we, we, we should deserve nothing but wrath apart from uh, the blood of Christ. So I think that the real question is, why do bad things happen to the Lord's people, right? I think that's really the question. Um, and it's a really profound question. But we can, we can see in Job that it's for his glory, um, and this heavenly realm 
and this great cloud of witnesses because there's, there's something else always going on, isn't there? Uh, aside from what we're seeing, which is temporal, there's what is unseen, and that is eternal. And when we go through things, we get the opportunity to walk through it as Job does and say with confidence, I know my Redeemer lives. By chapter 19, it's, second, it's the second round of Bildad getting really fired up and really telling Job, you're the problem. And he says something that clearly gets Job because he says, the wicked will be extinguished. There'll be no more. And he's certainly implying that to Job. You're done. Nothing else. You're going to be extinguished. And that's where we get Job saying this famous section that we all know. It's glorious. For I know my Redeemer lives. And before it, as we read it, oh, that my words were written down. Isn't that interesting? And they are, aren't they? We've got them. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead that were engraved in a rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from the flesh I shall see God, whom I see myself and shall behold, and whom my eyes will see." Uh, what a glorious statement, right? And that is special revelation, isn't it? Um, I know my Redeemer. This is near kinsman type of language. This is the one that comes and pays that debt. This is the one that literally is a rescuer. Job knows his rescuer is coming. It's really glorious. We're the same way. We know our rescue is coming. He's already been and I know we got to be careful. We don't read too much into it, but we, we, we have the joy of progressive revelation. But to, to me, it's very clear, right? And I know there's debates. There's debates about everything. Sometimes you've got to land, right? I know my Redeemer lives. The Spirit, His fellowship, He knows the Messiah is coming, perhaps from the Genesis promise, right? Um, I know my Redeemer lives. He knows it's not going to be extinguished for Him. He knows there's hope, and he's in a real mess when otherwise there wouldn't be much hope. He has just said, by the way, I wish the day I were born were wiped away from history. He did curse the day he was born. He didn't curse God, but he cursed the day he was born. He wished it had gone away. Uh, one of the interesting things about the majority of the book is it does seem as though God is absent. You know, and isn't that kind of the hard part about going through suffering? God is active, but truth be told, it, he, it does seem silent at times, doesn't he? Um, he certainly is silent here for Job. Uh, it's chapter 38 before God speaks. Uh, that's, that's, that's a... That's a you know, that's a long time, however we want to look at it. And you all know that. When you've gone through difficulty, um, God has proven faithful, but there are seasons where you do kind of say, God, you know, where are you, right? And that's okay. And notice, too, when Job gets to feeling sorry for himself, when he, when he is in that tough spot, he talks to God. He doesn't become atheist, right? He doesn't turn from God. He he complains to God. He, 
And you know, as you know, he, he does cross the line. He does provoke God. He questions his love for him. We, we probably would too if we went that way. Um, it would be hard not to, right? Um, but God does speak. And when he does, it's really interesting. Uh, his responses are a whole series of questions, as you remember. The first one, he says, where were you when the foundations of the world were made? That's, that's, a, that's a pretty hard question. That's a really hard... Where were you when the foundations of the world were laid. Do you know what time the mountain goat gives birth? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the armory of the hail? On and on and on and on. These questions that are really big. They're really profound They're questions of, tell me, have you seen, where were you? The two I really like, he asks them to consider Bohemoth and Leviathan. Lots of debates here, but he describes them. They sound like a hippo. They sound like a crocodile. And by the way, that's a pretty common sort of, you know, you look at people that kick this around, that's a pretty common look at it. You know, it's, hey, he's describing a, a hippo and a crocodile. So for the sake of this morning, let's all just go with that. It's okay if you've got a different, you know, there's some sort of mythical sort of descriptions of something. And, um, and it, it's likely that Job didn't know about these creatures. I don't know, but they're described. And he says, consider Bohemoth, consider the hippo, and consider Leviathan. I am a big fan of animal shows, Nicole will tell you. I absolutely love them. I can't get enough of them. Um, in fact, I strongly encourage you to uh, you know, get you a nice TV. Um, they're cheap. They don't last long because they're, they're filling up landfills everywhere. But get you a nice TV with a, you know, some surround sound and, and watch our planet. Make sure it's dark. Our planet is fascinating. You just learned so much there. And it's almost a worshipful experience to ponder all that, that these animals do and how they do it. And the, it's just remarkable. But the hippo? Mm-mm. The hippo, to me, in my opinion, is the most savage animal on the planet. It really, they, they're, they're mad at everybody. And they're big, the jaws are giant, the teeth are huge, right? And they will kill anybody that comes around them. There's no plan for them either. You know, I'm told like with a brown bear, there's a, I always get them mixed up, and that's a problem. Whether you stand your ground or whether you, you know, there's, there's, you hide or if crawling a ball. And there's stories where a brown bear will leave you alone if you do the right thing. Hippos, nope, you're dead. <laughs> you're going to die. They kill over 500 people um, a year, and they're not around densely populated places. Uh, you come around a hippo, they're going to kill you. And my problem with hippos, they're vegetarians. <laughs> they'll just kill you because they're mad at you. 
right? I understand the Bengal or the lion, right? They're going to eat, not the hippo. They'll kill you and leave you for dead. I watched one little clip where there was an antelope or some you know, family of the deer crossing a, a river, and this hippo came and scooped him in his mouth gently and took him to the side. And I went, oh, there goes my theory. This is the only Christian hippo right here. <laughs> there's, a, there's a heart in a hippo. But then the, the camera spanned back, and there was a bunch of crocodiles coming. And that hippo had so much malice, he's like, you guys aren't going to eat. I'm going to help this little antelope over. Hippos are savage. It begs the question, why? You know, why the hippo? Crocodile, same thing. I grew up in Illinois. I've swam in lakes and ponds at night. No problem. You do that here, you're going to die. <laughs> That's my opinion anyway. I can't believe anybody gets in a lake around here. Our kids would go to a youth, <laughs> a youth where we're at in Gainesville, and they would go skiing at a lake. And I was just like, I don't think this is a good idea. There's alligators in these water, and you will die. Uh, the truth is, I guess it's just at night that they'll kill you. But, but I, it asks the question, why? You know, why the crocodile? And the answer really is, as you ponder it, for God's glory. That's it. There's no explanation. Every one of these questions are left with no real answer other than for God's glory. You know, he asks him to ponder Orion and Pleiades, right? Have you, have you strung the, uh, uh, the, the uh, I forget what you call it, the, uh, the constellations, right? Have you strung those together, Job? Um, the answer is no, right? God is very big when we look at these questions. Uh, I'm blown away by um, that, by looking up. You know, it is really remarkable. I have a confession to make. I went all the way through college. I thought the end of the road was past Pluto. I didn't really know there was anything else out there. I thought this sun was the biggest show in town. Apparently, there's bigger balls of fire out there. That's pretty remarkable. And these are the types of questions he's inviting us to look at. Uh, I've, I've learned that we are spinning at around, they say, 65,000 miles an hour around a giant ball of fire. Giant ball of fire. And it's not consuming itself. That's fascinating. It's kind of like that bush, right? That giant ball of fire keeps doing its thing. It's not consuming itself. And we're spinning around it, they say, around 65,000 miles an hour. And then we're spinning this way around 16,000 miles an hour. And we're tilted just perfectly, like 23 degrees. And we've been doing this for quite a while, perfectly. That gets out of whack just a little bit. It's bad, gang. It's bad. We're going to freeze or we're going to burn up. We had a student over. He was in, in Gainesville. We live in Gainesville at the University of Florida there, which is where I work. Um, we had a student that was in a gap between um, uh, his, his uh, uh, contractor lease. He's a Ph.D. in nuclear fission. He's a really smart guy. I got to going on this, how amazed I was. And at the end of this, you know what he said? He said, hey, Chad, you know the sun... They estimate it's spinning at 800,000 miles an hour around the center of the galaxy. Think of the calculus of that, friends. Everything in order. We're doing this perfectly for quite some time. And lo and behold, 
that sun's also ripping through the galaxy. It's fascinating. And these are the kinds of questions that Job's asks to ponder in the midst of his pain. That's how God uh, responds. Uh, And these are really, really good questions for us, aren't they? At the end of this, chapter 42, here's Job's response to, to all of these questions. And it's as glorious as 19. It's as glorious as he says to his wife, hey, oh, by the way, did I mention that Job's wife came to him? It's almost as if Satan preserved her because she comes to him, remember, when he's at the worst condition possible. And you know what she says. She says, curse God and die. The very words of the enemy. Curse God and die. And he says, you're talking like a godless woman. You know, implying you're not. But you're talking like a godless woman. And he goes through the same thing. Should we not take good and yes, trouble from God? It's really profound. Job is really, really Grounded, And he says at the end of all this questioning from God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I have heard of you with my hearing, and now I see with my eyes, therefore I retract and repent. Through these questionings, Job got really small, right? And God got really big. And I think that helps us a lot when we go through difficulty and trial. Uh, I had a professor that talked about, you know, the, he would lead these, um, these trips to Israel. And one of the, he'd always have an interpreter with him, a local national. And one of the questions that was raised from the from the, uh, the, the folks that were a part of one of his trips, said, what is the deal with the yarmulke? And he actually asked the interpreter that was with him to, to explain it. And he said, well, it's, it's tradition. And he said, if you ask 10 rabbis, you might get seven or eight different responses. But he said, at the heart of it, it's a sign of God having his hand on the man and saying, little man, you're not such big stuff. That's pretty good, isn't it? These questions do that for us. Little man, little woman, we're not such big stuff. And that's a good place to be. Uh, He is totally in control. He is totally working his good, even in Job's life. But make no mistake, he's totally doing it for his glory. And that's a good thing, too. Uh, We read in James... We're asked to ponder, you remember, the patience of Job and the compassion of God. I think that's interesting, right? When you read Job, and I encourage you, you know, to, 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 to read it again. It'll take you about an hour and 18 minutes if you're a slow reader like me. But it, it doesn't initially jump off the page, the compassion of God. But as we have the joy of looking at it and the way Job was blessed at the end, you remember, God blessed him really big, right? He doubled everything he had, gave him 10 children. He lived to be 142 years old. God blessed him, and God was glorified. God blessed him here, 
And he certainly blessed him in the life to come. That's the promise we have. But I just think it does show his compassion and how he blessed him uh, here as well. The steadfastness of Job is probably a better word, isn't it? The stick to itness of Job through what was a very, very difficult time. Uh, you know, Moses learned the same thing that Job did. You know, Job, probably a contemporary of Abraham, 500 years, by the way, before Moses comes along. And Moses saw a lot of God in a lot of unique ways. Uh, you remember that Exodus account where God comes down and meets the people. That's a pretty, uh, that's one of those we just sang, you know. Uh, when the trump sounds and the Lord shall descend, even so, it's well with us because of the blood of Christ. Outside of that, that's a scary time when that trump would sound, right? But with us and the imputed righteousness of Christ, it's well with our soul when he comes. But when he came at Mount Sinai, that was a, that was a rough scenario. In fact, it was so bad. I mean, it, there's peals of thunder and lightning and the, the mountains shaking and the smoke's going up like a vacuum. There's a shofar from heaven. It's an assault on their senses. They say to, they say to Moses, hey, speak to us yourself lest we die. You know? But Moses says, I've seen things with my eyes and I've heard things with my ears, but the secret things belong to God. Why the behemoth? Why Leviathan? For God's glory, right? The foundations laid the way they are, the constellations, for God's glory. They're secret things, and they belong to God. And the struggle and the pain that we face, we could still know that our Redeemer lives. It's as sure as we're sitting here, gang, and we need to remind each other of that, don't we? We need to sing it over each other because there's times... We're going through some really hard stuff. I hate the term relative, but pain to me is relative. If you've got children that go wayward, that's a deep pain, isn't it? If unfaithful spouses, that's a deep pain, right? Um, but our Redeemer lives, and everything is yes and amen in Christ, and it will be made right. Uh, we're going to wrap up. I've got a couple things that... Um, I want to ask that would might help us, very simple, very practical, hopefully, how they might help us say, my Redeemer lives when we face trial, when we're in trial. Uh, one, I do think it would do us well to position ourselves to ponder these questions. And you might read them, some of these questions we went over that God raised to Job Get yourself in a position where we can see. And the nice part about where you live, you live on a beach. I find that to be a tremendous place to see a sunset. And I think it's helpful if we do it in the right spirit, right? We've, we need to be in the spirit and not in the flesh. Otherwise, it's a disaster. Uh, we, took a, we took a trip from Strasbourg. I don't even know if that's Germany or Austria. To Innsbruck. We had a wonderful trip with the family. And this, I didn't realize it, but this drive, wow, it was so amazing through the Alps. But that morning, this is on like week three, I didn't have my CPAP machine, so I was a wreck. I was a mess. That morning, we wanted to go, uh, I wanted to go eat downtown and have some nice breakfast and some coffee. And, 
we drove downtown. There's no place to park. And Nicole says, let's just go, and we'll just get something somewhere at a gas station. And we did. And guess what? I was all mad. It was so silly. I was so mad. You know, I just went... We're driving through the prettiest part of the world, in my opinion, and I'm just grabbing a steering wheel. You know, I'm just, you know, for whatever reason, in the flesh, right? I would like to repeat that and enjoy what I was seeing. It's very easy, right, to not enjoy what we're seeing. I took a trip out to the Grand Canyon my sophomore year of college with a friend of mine. I stood at the Grand Canyon at the South Rim. It's about, I don't know, eight or nine miles across, about a mile deep. It had snowed just a little bit before, and boy, that was optic overload. It was absolutely beautiful. I stood there as a practical atheist, and boy, I mean, I believed in God, right? But I wasn't in any way living where I was accountable to him. But that kind of shut me up. It was really an awesome experience, the grandeur and the beauty. And as you all know, we read in Romans 1, for since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his divine nature and eternal power have been clearly seen, being understood through that which is made. We can look up, we can look around, and we need the Spirit to let us see and rejoice and worship in it. Uh, I like the sunrise. We normally go to the, the East Coast, and I, I, I do like to get out there really early. Right, like a, like a couple hours before the sun comes up. That way you're cold and you're really wanting that ball of fire to come up. And it doesn't matter if it's the middle of summer. It's kind of cold out there on the beach. But it's a unique experience to watch a giant ball of fire be birthed out of water. And that's exactly what it looks like. And it's a worshipful experience. It makes me feel really small. And being small is a good place to be, right? Because we see God and we can trust him and we know we're kept in Christ And we know our Redeemer is going to come, and we're going to see him, and he's going to stand on the earth. And that's a tremendous promise. Um, I'm going to leave us with this, and it's, um, it's Paul's admonition to the church at Corinth, the second letter he writes. And he says... Take heart. Even though the body is decaying, the inner man is being renewed. For this momentary light affliction is producing for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. For the things that are temporal are the things that are seen, and the things that are eternal are the things that are unseen. Be encouraged as we go through difficulty. Our Redeemer lives. God has not left the throne. He's there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life and the testimony of Job and your faithfulness to him. Uh, Would you help us to be students of your word so that we can be encouraged uh, by seeing how you move, by seeing how you act, and by how compassionate you are towards us. Uh, Thank you for Christ who is our hope in life and in death. Uh, We pray these things through Christ and by your spirit. Amen.